Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan, who closed out last week's show by breaking down the thought process behind how he would spend his $74 DraftKings free bet and settled on a low-risk, low-reward approach that caused our friend Captain Jack Andrews to run the gamut of emoji emotion on Twitter. Uh, I, too, had a $74 free bet to make and struggled with how to use it. But before I get to that, John, how did your bet turn out, and how did you feel about Captain Jack's response? Uh, Yeah, I looked it up, and uh, I started out last week with uh, Justin Rose to win $1,480 to win. That was pretty exciting uh yeah he was doomed about six holes in he had a furious rally on uh friday to only miss the cut by three strokes so yeah zero <laughs> fun had they taken that one right uh brandon todd to win twenty five hundred ninety dollars after a decent start on a thursday he birdied 16 and 17 on friday to miss the cut by one stroke not much fun there either mm-hmm. uh brandon grace to win seven thousand four hundred dollars that was really <laughs> exciting to me um he missed the, sh- missed the cut by two shots, yeah. Okay. Um, then I shifted gears. I said, maybe old man Jim Furyk, uh, just, you know, top 20 to win uh, $286. That was exciting. Uh, he also missed the cut by two shots, so that wouldn't have worked. <laughs> There's a pattern um, here. <laughs> yeah, Sergio Garcia, a top 20 for $148. Uh, uh, he needs to at least make that to qualify for the FedEx Cup playoffs starting this mm-hmm. week. So that was tempting. Um he hit the number on the cut line, and then he was two over par on Saturday, and he finished high for 66. So, again, a loser. Um, youngster Sunjay M, top 20, uh, uh, also for $148. Um, after a so-so opening round, um, he really gained his uh, 
bearings on the weekend, and uh, he got a share of ninth place. Two shots clear of being chopped, so that was the needle in the haystack. Um, mm. Second best then was my drama-free, you know, pick by uh, Webb Simpson, top 20, the, the favorite of the tournament, uh, to get like $52 or something. So I would say Captain Jack's emojis ran the gamut, and he another other Twitter follower uh, added his own uh, dismay about my conservatism, but right. those guys are gamblers, you know, and pretty clearly after this uh, exercise, I am not. <laughs> hey, I won 52 bucks, so um, now my picks in the past year have been good enough that maybe I should be a gambler, but that's not that's a whole different question. <laughs> right, right. Well, so here's the follow-up question. Your mm-hmm. bankroll has ballooned a bit with this yeah. bet and some other, uh, some other wins yeah. you've had recently. Will you do, as you said, and take $20 or so of your winnings and roll it over into a much bigger bet than you would normally make sometime uh, later this year? Uh, possibly at the U.S. Open in a few weeks, yeah. If, if I really like somebody... Um maybe but that, that, I, that's that sounds like you're ready to maybe do 10 or so maybe uh no i'm thinking 20 on okay. this open if i love somebody at like 15 or 20 to one okay but then then, I'll, then i'm gonna lose then i'm gonna say oh god 20 bucks <laughs> so yeah i guess i'm not much of a gambler i guess not yeah not with that <laughs> attitude all right well so, so here's what i did with my free bet uh this was last thursday the day that would determine which western conference nba teams would make the play-in game The Suns and Grizzlies both played early against opponents with nothing to play for and both needed to win. The Spurs played next, but if the Suns and Grizzlies won, the Spurs would then have nothing to play for. And then the Blazers played last and also needed to win against a team with nothing to play for. So it seemed pretty clear to me that I should leave the Spurs out and a parlay of Phoenix, Memphis, and Portland was fairly safe. Uh, All all were favored comfortably, but by combining them, I got plus 151 odds, meaning my $74 free bet would be worth $111 if they all won. That felt like about the right risk and value for me. Phoenix and Memphis both won, and that's where it got interesting for me. When you have the multiple favorite parlay, you get nice underdog odds on a hedge if you make it to the last game. So the Nets were plus 450 against Portland. The Nets have been frisky throughout this little bubble season. Uh, So I put $10 on them so that I would have something to show for my free bet either way. But then, in-game, just before halftime, the Nets were hanging around. They were down by six points. And after a simple change of possession, their odds suddenly jumped from plus 525 to plus 700. And so I pounced on that for five more bucks. And uh-huh. that that allowed me to go to sleep, uh, not sweating the ending at all, not really caring who wins. I was either going to profit $80 if the Nets won or $96 if the Blazers did. Nice. Portland ended up eking it out. I would have had a major sweat on my hands uh, had I not done any hedging. Uh, I also would have won $15 more by not hedging at all. But in the end, very happy with how I played it. Uh, no, that's, uh, that's actually perfect. Uh, I, I hate it when people uh, don't want to hedge, and I like to say to them, you know, do you normally bet $500 on a game or $1,000 on a game, wherever the, the long odds are from like a preseason favorite to win the Super Bowl or something? And uh, that's when they start to say, oh, I see what you mean. Like you did the exact right thing, and I, I would recommend that to anybody else. Like do you really want to, in effect, gamble that number that you're talking about all or nothing? And you uh, you hedged it nicely. Yeah, well, th- thank you. But I guess it it does depend on how big you're playing relative to your bankroll and how big you normally play. And I guess yes. what the pro- the pros will always tell you that 
if there's value in the individual hedge, if you're getting decent odds on that, then it then it's worth considering if you're actually getting a bad price and looking to hedge just to hedge, maybe not so much. But uh, in this case, yeah, I thought I was getting a, a decent price on the nets and uh, I was uh, had, had a little more of my bankroll on the line than is usually the case with my $10, $20 type bets. So, um, yep, in the end, it all worked out for both of us. We're both richer than we were last week, at least in terms of our betting bankrolls. Yeah, and you were hedging on free money, by the way. So, right, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 105 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 104 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review. And don't hedge on the review. Keep it 100% glowingly positive. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by our colleague Jill Dorson, uh, one of the top sports betting legislation reporters out there. We're going to talk to Jill about all sorts of notable news from state to state, covering Illinois, Colorado, Tennessee, and more. But first, it's been a typically busy news week, I would say, in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. We start this week with a straightforward sports betting story all about games and results and a historic set of results. On Monday, across MLB, NBA, and NHL, there were 21 games played, and in 20 of them, the favored teams won outright. The only underdog that won was the St. Louis Cardinals beating the Chicago Cubs 3-1. to But otherwise, the favorites all prevailed, and that made it a historically bad day for the sports books. Uh, ESPN's Doug Kazarian interviewed several top bookmakers about it. South Point's Jimmy Vaccaro said they had to restock their drawers with cash three times and said, quote, I can't remember something that bad. Westgate's Jay Cornegay told Kazarian it was, quote, the worst day of the year by far, meaning since sports started back up again. Um, why was it so bad? It's not that people bet the favorites that much more than the underdogs when you have money line prices balancing things out. But the thing is, people love to parlay a bunch of favorites together, such as my free bet wager, for example. Um, so every multi-favorite money line parlay that didn't include the Cubs was a winner. Uh, some of them for big amounts if you put six or seven or eight favorites together. Uh, also, for what it's worth, in the NBA games, which get the most action of the three sports, all four favorites covered the spread as well. I know you've said before, John, that a bad day for the books gets chalked up as great advertising for the books. Is that how you see it, that none of the bookmakers are actually upset about getting slapped around for one day like this? Oh, absolutely. Think about it. Countless winners are telling their family and friends, maybe treating them to some fine outdoor socially distant dining around the country, <laughs> yeah. um, and either directly or indirectly planting a seed for their family and friends that, hey, maybe I should try that too. You know. Right. So the best part of it is when you mention uh, all those parlays coming in too. Um, those are easily the book's biggest margin, of course, double digits. Um, and that money will come flying back in and only occasionally will come back out <laughs> for months and for years to come. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the key point that the, the books benefit because days like this aren't likely to repeat, but betters will chase them and lose some big parlays the very next day. Uh, you know, that was the day when both the Bucks and the Lakers lost their opening playoff games as big favorites. So I'm sure that busted up just about every uh, quote unquote safe parlay mm -hmm. that people put in uh, the next day. But yeah, I mean, 
it's not just sports betting. Every form of gambling needs this kind of advertising once in a while. Uh, poker blows up when the average Joe watches a fellow average Joe, Chris Moneymaker, win two and a half million dollars. Uh, a slots jackpot hits. The casinos want the word to spread. Uh, I remember specifically as a kid, the older brother of some girls I went to school with, he was like 21. He went to Atlantic City. He got on a hot run and won like $70,000 at the blackjack table. Mm. The Philadelphia Inquirer wrote about it, and suddenly 13 or so year old me is interested in playing blackjack. Uh, That's how the industry works. The house needs to lose sometimes, and the house needs people to hear about it. Yeah, and I think uh, casual gamblers know, look, I'm going to lose money in the long run, but um, how long can it last, and can I get some highs to go with my lows? And then, so it's it's sort of a – an undescribed agreement between between both sides, you know, right. I know you're going to win in the end. I'm going to lose in the end, but let's have some fun while we do it. And so I think it works out great. Yeah. A lot of a lot of talk this week about unwritten rules. And I guess that's that's one of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Our next news item takes us to my home state of Pennsylvania, where July revenue numbers were released on Monday. And the big story is that taken as a whole. In the first full month with casinos mostly back in action in the state, gaming revenue was up ever so slightly by about half a percentage point over July 2019. I said casinos were mostly back in action, and what I meant by that is Rivers Philadelphia didn't open until late in the month, Rivers Pittsburgh closed for one week due to a COVID spike, and all casinos had a 50% cap on customers plus food, drink, and smoking limitations. As a result, Slots were down 17.3% compared to the year before, and table games were down 31.8%. But online casino was in its infancy a year ago, and that generated $51.3 million in revenue in July, plus almost $3 million from online poker. And sports betting handle had a nice bounce back, similar to New Jersey. It was up 85% over the previous month. So... In total, Pennsylvania gaming revenue for July was $283.1 million, which is great news for the government agencies that count on that tax revenue. Uh, Also, another Pennsylvania casino news story. As you wrote, John, 40 casino employees in the state have tested positive for COVID, although confidentiality laws prevent us from knowing which casinos had cases. Whether the virus is actually spreading at casinos is unclear. Certainly all of those employees could be catching it elsewhere. But nevertheless, that's an important story to watch if we want casinos to stay open and revenue in the months ahead to remain strong. Uh, John, any thoughts on the healthy Pennsylvania revenue numbers or the not so healthy COVID numbers? Yeah, I mean, I would just say first, a handful of states that have implemented both mobile sports betting and online casino gaming, including New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Um, they say those businesses that in many cases employ like a thousand or more employees at brick and mortar locations. So they're not back to full employment at the casinos themselves yet. Right. But the majority of those workers are back. And the bottom line for those uh, casinos, you know, on the uh, on the uh, online end is really, you know, helping them stay whole. So I feel for the casino employees in most states who, even if they are back to work, they have to worry, can their bosses survive if there's like a second COVID wave, let's say, mm-hmm. without the backstop of online gambling for them. So um, the forward thinking states are really uh, looking better and better. 
Uh, as for the positive tests of casino workers, um, in doing my research, it seems pretty clear to me that state officials can't really offer a casino by casino breakdown for a number of legal reasons, as you mentioned. So uh, what should happen, it has a Borgata Atlantic City, the two Connecticut tribal casinos, among others. Um, casinos themselves should inform their employee base, as well as the local public, about positive tests. You know, they, they can do that without obviously mentioning who it is, but um, that really helps a lot. Uh, the Meadowlands Racetrack is the one uh, casino racetrack in the Northeast that I've visited that um, you fill out a, like a 20 question form with your name and address uh, each day you show up. So if there is uh, a, an outbreak, let's say at the track, God forbid, they have a contact tracing issue. Um, that's um, that's a mixed bag for a lot of people. It's great. I mean, if you're if you're are somewhere and there is an outbreak, you you're thrilled if they can call you and tell you, you know, test immediately, you're liable to be, you know, that's bad. But mm -hmm. if, if it doesn't happen, then you realize that you've given out a lot of private information to who knows, you know, China, Russia. I mean, you know, we don't know. Right. So I, I understand that's a difficult uh, situation, too. So and then meanwhile, there are rumors about dozens of workers in a single uh, Las Vegas casino testing positive. I mean, if those are true. I, I think those operators have a moral obligation to let the workers and gamblers know about it, really. I mean, yeah. that's a short-term pinch to the bottom line. I get it, and that's hard to deal with. But leveling with people can buy you goodwill so that a few weeks later, if you can honestly report that the issue has been resolved, well, that you know might be the casino to try, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I agree completely with with your stance on on that part of it. That uh, I I didn't realize that uh, Borgata and the Connecticut casinos had just taken it upon themselves to inform their employees and, and customers in that way. But I, I think that each casino should have to report simply whether it has had any employees test positive. You don't have to give out names, obviously, and maybe you don't even have to give out the numbers at your casino. Um, but just to say, yes, we have had a positive test or no, we haven't, I think the customers have a right to know and then make their own decisions about whether they want to go there. Um, but, you know, I like, I think that barring a big outbreak, you know, in Pennsylvania, barring the state showing a serious spike, uh, which it might if schools open back up, we might see some numbers go way back up. But barring that, you know, 40 cases at 12 casinos over a month and a half, yeah. they're not going in reverse over that, I, I don't think. Uh, you know, certainly if Vegas hasn't shut back down, Pennsylvania casinos aren't likely to either. So I, I do think things will keep humming along there. But I like you, I'd like to see a, a little more in the way of disclosure. Um, as for the Pennsylvania uh, revenue numbers, I find the slots and table games break down interesting and completely logical. You know, of course, slots aren't down that much. Playing slots isn't that much different than it used to be. But table games are, are, are down more, and that makes total sense. A, a big part mm. of what some people love about table games, uh, you know, the communal party aspect, that's all but gone for now. Um, so, so that all made uh, total sense to me. Uh, and then on the sports betting front, I made a prediction last week that August sports betting handle in New Jersey would hit $500 million. Uh, so I feel it's uh, my duty to lay out my Pennsylvania prediction as well. Uh, I think that revenue in Pennsylvania won't be great with all the giveaways and promos that they've been doing this month, but handle will be huge. I'll set the line at $330 million in August in Pennsylvania, about double what it was in July. And, and that despite the fact that everyone in the state should, as of now, August uh, 20th here as we're recording this, should be done putting money on the 76ers at this point. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Um, yeah, I know. I, I got a wake up call from Twitter, as we often do. Uh, in early June, the first uh, 
two uh, casinos in the Northeast reopened in Connecticut. And five minutes into my visit to uh, Foxwoods, um, I got two responses already. Show me the craps table. People wanted to imagine <laughs> what does a craps table look like in the yeah. in the apocalyptic era. And sure enough, there's plexiglass between each player. And uh, it's kind of weird because, you know, a lot of people have never played craps and some haven't even been to a casino. But they've all seen movies, you know, where yeah. there's a big group gathering and somebody's getting lucky and they're kissing the dice and they're they're blowing <laughs> on it. And they're throwing it and 100 people are jumping around and, and celebrating. They, they understand that communal aspect. And it's just weird with plexiglass. So, uh, yeah, that's why table games are down. You can't really have that same experience but it is what it is yeah yeah certainly i would i have not really watched a craps game get get played uh, since this started up again but i would have to assume that uh kissing and blowing on the dice uh, the, those activities are prohibited currently yeah i've <laughs> seen a little bit of you know sort of communality like you know i mean uh, humans are survivors you know so somebody throws a good number and they kind of like air kiss or they they you right. know uh, virtually fist bump and <laughs> yeah. smile and it's like a it's a good effort. I mean, what the heck? You got to make do with what you have, but it's not the same. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm uh, I'm assistant coaching my son's little league team, and at the end of the games now, instead of the line up and slap hands and say good game, one team lines up on the first baseline, one team lines up on the third baseline, and we all doff our caps and say good game. So, uh, yeah, we're all making adjustments. I like this. It's it's still sportsmanship. Right. All right. Our final story this week is a quick follow-up on a news item we've discussed recently. There was significant news this week in Illinois, Tennessee, and elsewhere, but we'll save a lot of that for our interview with Jill. So instead, for our third story, let's talk about the New Jersey DGE's ruling on FanDuel's efforts to deny soccer bettors their money after they took advantage of an errant line in July. Although in Europe, those bets are routinely voided, in New Jersey, the precedent has been set to enforce payment, and that's just what David Reebuck and his team did, making FanDuel pay the customers and take responsibility for their faulty odds. Where it gets interesting now is in Indiana, where FanDuel voided the very same bets, but now the commission in Indiana is reportedly looking into it. John, do you expect what happened in New Jersey will ultimately happen in Indiana? And should we expect these FanDuel odds problems to stop now that they've been slapped on the wrist a couple of times? Well, I'm going to pat myself on the back for almost a 1969 Joe Namath guaranteeing last <laughs> yes. that FanDuel would be out of luck in New Jersey. Yeah, I did call that one. Yep. Um, my tweet on this was, you know, one state's unofficial motto is Indiana nice. New Jersey, forget about it. Uh, <laughs> but when it comes to betters, New Jersey is nice and Indiana, not so much. So the better got stiff there for the same error. Um I spent a lot of time in Indiana in my life, and I'm not convinced they will follow New Jersey's lead. I think regulators there may be more empathetic to the sportsbook operators, oddly enough, than the betters. And it almost might be like a puritanical thing of like, well, these people, that's not fair. They they noticed a line that wasn't accurate, and they try to exploit the poor sportsbook, and so we don't want them to gain advantage from that. So hmm. we're going to defend the sportsbook operators against these nasty gamblers. I mean, it's kind of weird, but I think that's what's going to happen. Interesting. See, I, I'll, I'll go against you on, on that one. Uh, we'll have to see. Uh, one of us will be right and one of us will be wrong. Because yeah. I think that once the Indiana Gaming Commission uh, has said that it's looking into it, I think that they are going to rule against FanDuel uh, and, and that this is going to become the clear precedent in the U.S., at least outside Nevada, which uh, which seems to 
operate separate from the newer sports betting states in terms of what it enforces. Um, but I, I am predicting that the Indiana betters will ultimately get their soccer winnings, but uh, we'll, we'll see on that. I'm, and I'm just, you know, I'm thinking about what can FanDuel do about this? They've, it's now happened twice. I don't know if these odds errors can be 100% prevented. You can try your best to eliminate glitches, but glitches are, you know, they're glitches. <laughs> they're not part of the plan. They pop up sometimes. I guess what FanDuel needs to do is hire more analysts to spot them quickly and take those odds down as quickly as possible. Um, I don't know. It's weird that it keeps happening to them and uh, not, as far as we know, happening to DraftKings or William Hill or whomever. There's something going wrong uh, at FanDuel that they are going to want to put some extra uh, time, effort, money, uh, manpower, et cetera, into uh, clamping down on. Well, I think this one, uh, the detail is actually far worse on this one. The first one two years ago was sort of an in-play thing where it was about an 18-second gap right. between the Broncos suddenly getting a field goal range. So their chances of winning went from like, you know, one in 20 to one in two, and somebody jumped on it. That's one thing. This was like a 24-hour window of an Emma, a Major League Soccer game that nobody was betting on. And there's only one, there were 10 online winners of this and one in-person Long Island guy who shows up with his father at the Metal Sportsbook, where you can walk in and make a bet. You can't sit there and watch the game. You can't get a drink. You can't get any food, but you can show up. I don't know why he bothered to show up. Such a 28-year-old guy. I mean, he knows better, but um, but he went to the racetrack and, and the sportsbook. And so he bets about $5,500 on the uh, Cincinnati team, I think it was, getting right. five goals in an MLS game, which is preposterous. And not only does he get that bet, it gets approved. It has to get approved by you know supervisor. The supervisor tells him, "Hey, by the way, you can bet up to another forty five hundred if you like. You know, no problem." And the guy's like, "Yeah, I'll do that." <laughs> right. So he bets a total of ten thousand dollars on a ridiculous number uh, on an admitted underdog, obviously. But uh, getting five goals, you gotta be kidding me. And so that's a that's a long window there. That's mm-hmm. not an eighteen second gap of like you got to be more careful with your in play stuff, which is you know I think. Not surprising to me. Right. That's actually surprising to me how rare it really happens. So right. I give credit to the books there. This was a massive, massive error. So, um, yeah, I would hope that uh, it would make uh, uh, a fan duel a little more aware. Although, again, it's like the, like the gambler's enticement, you know, to think, hey, if I keep you know paying attention to every line, every every moment, they might screw up again and I'll get a free free money like this guy. Right. True. Good point. Yep. If they can, if they can. Now, they, they haven't sought publicity in quite the same way they did with the 18 second glitch by making a, a promo out of it. But uh, yeah, uh, it's uh, yeah, you're absolutely right to point out that this one was much more av- avoidable and much, uh, much more damning really that there's something, something wrong in their process and that they need to uh, pay, pay closer attention to this sort of thing. Yeah. They sort of threw a unnamed third party under the bus that screwed up, but uh, you know, in the end they pay for it. Yep. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. I tend to think of myself as a sports journalism industry veteran, but I'm the relative rookie on the show today, as John and I are now joined by a colleague who, like John, has been a part of the sports media business for more than 30 years. Jill Dorson is the managing editor of SportsHandle.com, and she's as knowledgeable as anybody out there about sports betting legislation across the United States. So we're going to pick her brain now about some current news topics. Jill, welcome back to Gamble On. 
well, thanks. I feel extra old this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was worried that it might imply that. That's not what I was going for. I was going for experienced, but uh, you know, so I be was it. Just joking. <laughs> All right, let's start in Illinois. Uh, following up on the conversation that we had with Chris Altruda on the podcast two weeks ago, uh, FanDuel and DraftKings both made noise in the state this week. DraftKings by leading a push to get Governor Pritzker to restore online registration for sports betting accounts, and FanDuel by part with the Paradise Casino in East Peoria to hurry up its launch and not fall too far behind DraftKings, which began taking mobile bets on August 5th. Jill, do you have any sense of whether, with the end of the pandemic not exactly in sight, online registration is likely to return? And when all is said and done, will Rush Street and Bet Rivers have enjoyed any meaningful advantage in Illinois from the so-called penalty box rule? Sure. I just want to back up real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, the FanDuel's partnership with Paradise is not new. It's from an existing partnership with um, Boyd Gaming, and they okay. had intended to go live at some point with Paradise all along. Um, the goal initially, though, was to go with Fairmount so that they could um, rebrand, which they did in January, and they could do what DraftKings did, which is be in the first position when they're introducing their sports book. So, for example, DraftKings is now DraftKings at Casino Queen, and FanDuel would have been FanDuel Sportsbook and Horse Racing um, should, had they gone live with Fairmount. Um, but to answer your question, um, you know, they're making a lot of noise so that they can move forward quickly and they can capture part of the market. But until remote registration comes back, it doesn't make an enormous amount of difference in terms of capturing market share. Mm-hmm. Um whether or not it will come back, I don't know. I have been hearing actually since the day that it was rolled back by the governor. The day that he didn't renew the executive order with remote registration, um, a lot of the operators were talking about lobbying to have remote registration put back in. Uh, so it's not a new idea. It's just that DraftKings was kind of first to um, implement it by asking their customers to push uh, the governor. And they're going to be the only ones for a while because for FanDuel, there's no point in lobbying if they're not live. Right. Um, and uh, once they are, it will make sense. And same thing, I would say, you know, not having talked to anybody, but for places like uh, PointsBet as well. Um, and in terms of when all is said and done, did Rush Street and Bet Rivers get any meaningful advantage? I don't really think so. But I also don't think that that's because of the way the law was written. I think it was just circumstance. Um, you know, they they opened in March, which didn't make any really big difference. The penalty box timeline or countdown didn't start until June when Rivers was licensed. Right. So they got a you know, they got a few day advantage, I guess, in June and and part of July with the remote registration. Um, and right now, without the remote registration, you know, any operator will tell you that that they just can't find people up, you know, fast enough. It's not convenient enough. Right. Okay. Yeah, you know, Jill, I've been skeptical of any new gambling launch states in states not named New Jersey or Delaware for many years now. Mm. And my winning percentage is really high. So November 1st, <laughs> will Tennessee really launch mobile sports betting on that date or sooner? And if the SEC doesn't have a football season, that's going to become all the more reason to miss that date. So I would say, actually, that November 1st is a pretty good date for Tennessee at this point. It will have been almost a year and a half since um Sports betting became law there. So they've taken a long time and they've had a bumpy road with some personnel changes, um, some issues with their proposed rules. 
Um, but after talking to their new vice president of sports betting, um, Danielle Boyd, I feel like she has a really good handle on what needs to get done. And that it's entirely possible actually, that they will launch a couple of weeks earlier. Um, the goal now is to launch the four platforms that are ready or that have applied for applications is to launch all four of them on the same day. Um, but during the meeting yesterday, the lottery board meeting yesterday, um, the lottery chief, Rebecca Hargrove did say that if three of those platforms are ready and one isn't, they're going to go with the three, mm-hmm. even if it's early. Um, and the fourth one can catch up. Regarding the SEC. Yeah. Yep. I mean, is it a reason to miss the date? You know, not really, because most of these states at this point, from everybody that I've talked to, it's not so much about, from the state perspective, getting out there and earning money right now. It's about getting out there and just getting started so that they know how it goes. And and in some cases, and, and this was the case, if you talk to the regulators in Colorado, there was something a little bit more peaceful about launching without a lot going on because they really yeah. just didn't have to worry as much about um, you know, external factors and they could, the operators and the regulator could focus on what they were doing. Okay. Yeah. And one follow up on Tennessee, uh, you know, the, the obvious, there's a uniqueness there. There's, it's the only state with no casinos yet they'll have sports mm-hmm. betting, but is there anything else right. about the, their Tennessee's laws? Are they kind of, uh, you know, how are they doing compared to other states in terms of what they're allowing and not allowing? Oh, sure. It's, well, for one thing, it's not a cheap state if you're an operator. Um, the application fee is $750,000 and the tax rate is 20%. Mm. And on top of that, it's the only state that has introduced what they're calling a payout cap, which means that every um, operator has to keep a 10% hold, which is higher than the national average, which I believe is 7.5%. Mm. Um, so they can only pay out 90% um, in winnings, which means that the odds won't be as favorable, um, as you guys know. Um, and it may help to push people offshore um, if they're not getting a good opportunity, even in a legal market. All right. Well, so we've covered Illinois and, and Tennessee, two states that have had their struggles getting off the ground. Uh, Colorado, which you just mentioned, that's one state uh, you've been covering that has mostly been doing things right. Uh, Jason Robbins of DraftKings recently lauded Colorado as a state that, quote, has always kind of punched above its population size. Uh, now, John and I had lengthy discussions several weeks ago about what the sports betting state rankings will look like in the near future, specifically at the end of 2021. With the way things are going so far in Colorado, could it indeed keep punching above its population size and be a top five sports betting state a year or two from now? So I'm going to say yes, but I also want to say that I don't know anybody in the business on the stakeholder side that doesn't just love Colorado. Mm-hmm. They've been completely organized. They've been very transparent. Um, they've done everything they said they were going to do. Um, and it's been a really, it's been an easy state, as it were, for um, for operators to launch in. And it's going to be a really open and competitive marketplace with, you know, more than 30 um, retail and online platforms. So to answer your question, are they going to keep punching above their weight? Probably, but it's as much because, um, you know, they came into this with a lot of experience um, and a lot of enthusiasm, actually. Um, and then comparatively, you have states like like Tennessee, which, you know, doesn't have any experience. But as you were talking about, um, Michigan, Illinois, Pennsylvania. Colorado does have probably about half the population of all of those states, but um, there's going to be more operators. Um, They've had a much smoother rollout. I mean, they only went live. The operators there only went live in May. 
Um, and there's been almost no complaints. And, you know, Illinois, it's very, it's choppy when people are, are able to go live and when they're not. Um, and they don't have remote registration, which Colorado does have. Um, Pennsylvania has a limit, if I remember, on the number of um, available uh, licenses. I think it was 13. So right. Colorado will have, you know, four times as much that as much as that. And then the other thing that I, um, Michigan obviously is, is still very much in the, we're, you know, we're in a pandemic and struggling to get organized. Right. Phase. They're trying to launch their mobile. And I think that if they launch mobile by the end of this year, that you'll see, you know, Michigan kind of zoom up those rankings. Um, but the other thing that I realized about Colorado the other day when I was doing this is that, you know, not only do they have one of every professional sport, um, but the Broncos are the only NFL team within 500 miles. Um, and they, so they can capture, you know, market share in, they're not big states, but in states like Montana and Wyoming and Utah um, and, you know, further south and Iowa. Um, well, I guess Iowa has its own, but you understand what I mean. Right. That there's, there's a huge swath of land in the United <laughs> States where the Broncos have basically own it because there's nothing. I mean, if you're going west, the next team is the Seattle Seahawks. Right. Huh. That's yeah. That's an interesting point that I hadn't really thought about. And you're right; those surrounding states are not are not the most populous. But in terms in terms of land mass that uh, could could come to Colorado and place some bets on the Broncos, there there is a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll uh, throw in uh, a couple more plaudits for Colorado. Um, talked to an industry insider uh, the other day, and he mentioned that their esports regulations are top of the line, the number one in the country. Mm-hmm. So. For legislators and their aides who might be listening, um, they probably should be looking at Colorado's uh, regulations, too, because that's what the industry is is uh, thinking is the best. And also, they've moved their corporate headquarters out of New Jersey, uh, Jersey City, and over to Denver. And um, part of it, part of the idea was that there is such a, a tech boom going on in Denver, mm-hmm. and there's so many young young people who uh, they can uh, attract to that area. And it was interesting to me, because Jersey City obviously has a New York City area market. And the number of tech people, young tech people, is enormous. And yet um, they think that Colorado and Denver in particular, uh, downtown, is a long-term play. So I give them credit. But my question next is let's get around the country, literally. And uh, Puerto Rico, okay. they're advanced in gambling. Uh, they don't get a lot of headlines, uh, particularly among those who don't know that it's part of the United States. <laughs> but uh, So please, Joe, catch us up on developments there. And overall, does it seem like it's a better or worse than average set of regulations among the, compared to the U.S. states? So the truth is, is that, you know, even as a, as a, you know, sports betting website, we probably don't get a bunch of bang for our buck when we talk about Puerto Rico. It's 3 million people. It's been in the news for uh, hurricanes more than anything. Um, But when I got a copy of their draft regulations, which were 141 pages, which is unusually long, um, I was intrigued. And it turns out that I was intrigued because um, there's a lot of little idiosyncrasies that, make it appear to be a very cool market for an operator to want to go into. But as you get further into it, you realize that there's a whole host of issues. Um, Some of them have to do with um, the operators directly and some don't. Um, For example, you can bet on basically everything under the sun and you probably are going to be able to bet in your neighbor's garage if he can get a license, which does not look like it's going to be too hard. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, the issues are things like, if you're a professional athlete anywhere in the world, you can't bet in Puerto Rico, period. So how are all of the um, 
operator is supposed to keep a list of professional athletes from around the world and then stop them from betting. Hmm. Um, there's some odd, um, I, not odd limits, but oddities about how kiosks can be used and what you can get from them um, in terms of how much you can deposit, how much you can wager, um, and how much the, the kiosks can pay out. Um, there's also a limit of $2,000 per day per person that you can bet. So anybody who's a sharp who's in Puerto Rico is probably going to remain offshore um, because <laughs> yeah. that limit is just not high enough. Yeah. Um, if you are licensed as of December 31st, 2018, as a cockfighting venue, you will not have to pay a sports betting licensing fee hmm. for 10 years. And if you're licensed as a horse racing venue um, on the same date, you won't have to pay, uh, you pay 50%. Um, so, you know, it's, they're obviously trying to help out uh, two things that are really part of the fabric of their culture, but it's, you know, unattractive if you're coming in, um, you know, from the U.S. or Europe, um, that you're going to have to compete against people who aren't going to be paying any kind of licensing fee. They have a leg up mm. to start off with. Um, and you know, there's a whole bunch of, of other things, really interesting advertising guidelines that are very strict about using cartoons and pirates and fairy tale characters and who you can advertise to and who you can't. Um, and one thing I thought was interesting is that it appears in the, um, regulations that for a retail location, you have to have a teller window. Um, and that means, for example, that William Hill would not have been able to go live with their retail sports book in Colorado because they don't have a teller window. They have a bunch of kiosks. Right. Um, and I, you know, I have no judgment on what's better, what's worse, but I just thought it was kind of an interesting, interesting piece for that. Um, and so, you know, overall, I just think that it's a, it's going to be one I've heard from operators. It's going to be a tricky market. Um, they're making it in Puerto Rico even less attractive. It's there's only 3 million people there. And even though there's double that in tourism, um, it's not a big market and making it tough on, on, a, an operator in a market where you might not be able to make a lot of money, just, you know, makes them turn away and say, no, nah, we're going to save our money and go to the Colorado's of the world. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, Jill Dorson reading 141 pages of draft regulations. So the rest of us don't have to, that's <laughs> yeah. one, of, one of the many reasons we love you, Jill. I do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is always great talking to you. Thanks so much, uh, Jill, for, for coming on the podcast again and sharing your, your insights and knowledge. No problem. And I hope we all get haircuts sooner than later. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm six months out now, Jill. Uh, thanks for coming on. That's why I said that. I saw your message. <laughs> no video. We all look scary. <laughs> yes. Audio only listeners be very happy right now. <laughs> Thanks, Jill. Anyway, thanks, you guys. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Although John and I both triumphed in our real-life free bets, we struggled with our bankroll bets, going a collective one and two, 
I was 0-1 with somewhat of a bad beat on my bet for Devin Booker to go over 30.5 points in the Phoenix Suns' must-win game on Thursday. He got to 27, but the Suns were so far ahead that he sat the whole fourth quarter, so we lost $120 on that. John also got unlucky with Harris English to finish top 20 in the Wyndham. He ended up 23rd, one stroke out of a chop, so we lost $100 there. But John made part of it back, picking Columbus to win game two against Tampa Bay. That's the only game of the series the Blue Jackets won, so well done there. A $50 bet at plus 150 odds won us $75. So in total, we lost $145 on the week. And one futures bet to update, I had the Lakers to finish with more wins than the Raptors, but that one is now officially a void as the teams didn't play the required number of games, so we get that $200 back in our bankroll. I was probably on track to win if the season had never been interrupted, but then the Raptors actually ended up with one win more than LA, although they also played one game more than LA. So ultimately, Avoid is the only fair ruling. Uh, and in, in the name of fairness, we should note, you know, we're in great shape with our Pirates under and our San Francisco Giants under. But we'll follow the rules. If either team doesn't play at least 59 games, which is what the fine print said, those bets will be voided also. And that, that'll be a sweat, you know, not whether the under will come in. We're looking good on that. But whether either team will miss enough games and be so far out of contention that there's no effort to make them all up. Uh, anyway, we are now up by $220. We have $700 on hold in futures bets. So we have $9,520 available to bet with. And you're up first, John. Yeah, I have a Reds bet that they win 32 games out of 60. And on DraftKings, they have to play exactly 60 games to mm. uh, make the bet live. So it would be a shame if that last game got rained out. I mean, you know, that would just be so unfortunate. And uh, it could happen. So <laughs> <laughs> I might be doing a rain dance on that final day, right. the way it's going. Uh, but meanwhile, Eric, in the entire 156-man Wyndham Field last week, there were only two players out of 156 that managed to miss cashing by – uh, the top 20 by exactly one shot. You know, one was a pretty prominent golfer, uh, uh, Shane Lowry, who was the reigning British Open Open Championship, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. uh, and will continue to reign until next year because I'm not okay. playing it. And the other was our, you know, unknown Harris English. Uh, our boy Bogey 12 and 14 on Sunday, mm -hmm. and on practically a pitch and putt course uh, for tour pros. That uh, That's a bad beat, but, you know, it happens. Uh, back to big boy golf courses now with the first leg of the FedEx Cup playoffs in the Boston area. Um, and a little bit in honor of Captain Jack, no chalky top 20 play this week. OK, I'm going for it. OK, so, <laughs> so there you go, Captain Jack. Uh, so let's go Tony Finau, by the way, cousin of the NBA's Jabari Parker and the NFL's Haladi Noda hmm. um, for fifty dollars at the top 10 at plus three thirty five. Another fifty for top five at plus six hundred. You know, Finau's a top 10 machine, including three of his top of his last four and this course is made for a longer hitter like him he was fourth here in 2018 as well his skill set i would say t to green maybe he's number one in the world and his hot putting streaks are amazing he can't close a deal and if his first a-level tour win is in a spot like this it's going to either be because someone hands it to him or there's some you know Poor play late by a, a, a schmuck that even he can beat so i, I can't bet him to win but i like him top 10 i like him top five 
All right. Uh, that's cool. I, I like we have some real upside there. If he does indeed make the top five, that'll be a nice boost to our bankroll. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I, too, am actually doing sort of two separate $50 bets here for my first bet. I'll, I'll go back to boxing. Uh, two good fights on one card in England on Saturday and two live underdogs who are both correctly considered underdogs. But the odds are a little wider than I think they should be in heavyweight action. Alexander Povetkin is plus 300 against Dillian White. I think he should be around plus 200. I do worry about him getting screwed on the scorecards if it goes the distance and it's close. And uh, maybe that's why he's plus 300. But I think Povetkin is worth betting. And same for Delphine Pursun taking on Katie Taylor in a big women's bout, a rematch to a fight last year that could have gone either way. Taylor got the close decision. They're doing it, it again. And Pursun is plus 290. Uh, I think Katie Taylor is an overrated fighter. If this were on neutral turf, I'd make Pursun only about a plus 150 underdog. So, you know, I'm wary of the scorecards in both fights, but I think they both have enough upset potential that I'll put $50 on Pursun at plus 290 and $50 on Povetkin at plus 300. And if one of them wins, we come out ahead either 45 or $50. And if they actually both win, we'll win $295. All right. So here's another amateur play. You know, I'm being told that um, NBA three-point shooting variance is so extreme that if you can find a team that would have won a game, they dominate every every level except three-point shooting, then they're in a good spot to win the next game because uh, that's going to balance out. They're not going to shoot that poorly again. Three-point mm-hmm. three uh, defense is not that uh, extreme. It's kind of like the guys make the shots they don't. They set themselves teammates up or they don't. So by based on that uh, idea, give me the Lakers 110 to win 100 minus 6.5 points over the Blazers uh, for Thursday night. Um, they did everything Lakers did in game one except make those three. So if they just play the same game again, they'll win by double digits. Okay, so we got the Lakers there uh, against the spread. Um, I'm going to do something unorthodox here with my last bet. I'm making an if-then bet. It's based on odds that haven't been released yet. So if the line is what I hope it will be, we're betting it. If not, I'm foregoing a second bet this week. Uh, The bet is on Nikola Jokic's points in Friday's Nuggets-Jazz Game 3. Our new colleague, Rafe Bartholomew, who knows basketball much better than I do, wrote a playoff preview for U.S. Bets on Monday, and he noticed that Jokic's scoring line was way too low. It was set at 21.5 for game one of the series. Uh, Jokic averaged 29 points per game in the bubble and 29.3 this season against the Jazz. So I bet that over for game one, and it won. Jokic passed the line midway through the fourth quarter, and he finished with 26 in regulation and 29 after overtime. For game two, the line went up one point to 22.5, but it was still too low. So I bet it again, and he passed it right at the start of the fourth quarter and finished with 28. Uh, Now, player props for Friday aren't out yet. Maybe the books will move the line up a couple of points, but I'm guessing not. As long as I can find it at 23.5 or lower, I will bet $110 on Jokic over in game three. If it goes up to 24 and a half or higher, I'll pass. But 23 and a half, even if there's a a bit of a vig on it, even if it's like minus 120 on the over at 23 and a half, I will bet on that. So we will see. I'll let you know uh, next time that we're uh, that that we're together, uh, whether uh, whether I ended up making a second bet uh, or not. Uh, And that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Jill Dorson. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow U.S. Bets at U.S. underscore bets. Go to U.S. Bets.com for 
all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling. And subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And a quick heads up that the podcast is taking a rare week off next week, although we might drop a little something special to fill the gap. But in terms of our next regular episode, we will be back in two weeks. Until then, John, please take us out. Yeah, and Eric, I think if I win golf this week again, I'll put on, on Bergen Brennan on Twitter uh, a pick next week anyway. Okay. But if not, I'll probably just pass because uh, it's a loser. But um, <laughs> overall, uh, just a tribute here to some big gamblers, I would say, who so far, uh, these are the professional athletes who are almost universally making it work in the NBA, NHL, MLB, and other bubble and non-bubble leagues. Um, they may not be likely to fatalities, obviously, but the majority are millionaires who can see their long-term health and thus their careers jeopardized, not to mention their at-risk loved ones who, if this gets done right, uh, you know, could enjoy comfortable years ahead. And if not, you know, could be a disaster. So um, these guys are getting it right. I really am impressed. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned my awareness of how much today's athletes treat their bodies as temples, you know, compared to my my era of coverage in the 1990s, which was, uh, you know, not so much. Uh, but these guys are out doing themselves. I mean, we knocked out six NBA teams and eight NHL squads right away. Uh, a bunch more NHL teams are gone uh, this week. Um, the odds get more in our favor, you know, reaching the finish line, you know, each additional team exiting. And so, uh, you know, NFL, a few weeks ago, I was saying, I can't believe it. I mean, I still can't quite imagine it yet, but uh, I'm up to maybe. So that's uh, pretty good progress. Uh, And with that, until next time, everybody, gamble on.